Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF Podcast. It's Friday, February 5th. A tide is turning in British retail. Businesses with underlying issues have become victims of the coronavirus pandemic. And there is no better example of this than the once high-flying, high-street, high-fashion retailer, Topshop. Good morning. Welcome to Breakfast with Dan Walker and Sally Nugent. Headlines for you at 6 o'clock this morning. 13,000 shop workers wait for news on their future as Sir Philip Green's Arcadia empire looks set to go into administration. Good morning, Topshop, Dorothy Perkins, Miss Selfridge among those brands on the brink. Could this be the biggest economic casualty of COVID yet? What next for the future of UK fashion? For a certain generation, it's hard to overstate Topshop the icon. But on high streets, it's soon to be history. It was once the most modern millennial trendsetter, but Topshop, Topman and Miss Selfridge have been sold to a new kind of retail giant. ASOS has bought the brands. The 70 stores will likely shut. So today on the BOF podcast, we're dissecting the rise, fall and future of Topshop with former Topshop brand director Jane Shepherdson and BOF senior editorial associate Tamison O'Connor, who published a BOF professional article this week on why ASOS needs Topshop. The sudden collapse of the Arcadia Group, which owns Topshop, is part of a wider British retail restructuring that is gathering momentum with venerable high street retailers like Debenhams and Topshop being acquired by ultra-fast fashion digitally native companies Boohoo and ASOS. Businesses that were once valued in the billions 
are being sold for their parts, leaving famous British high street chains in tatters. I first spoke to Jane Shepherdson, who worked her way up from the lowly job of allocator to become brand director of Topshop in 1998, when she began to lead a team of creatives looking to reposition Topshop by bringing passion, service, and design to the British high street. It was about a respect, bringing in a real respect for the customer and, and trying to make sure that everything that we did was as good as it possibly could be and that we were giving her something that she couldn't get elsewhere. I then started to bring in people to, to support that and I brought in a, an amazing marketing director, Joe Farrelly, who'd come from Levi's and Levi's at the time were, you know, they'd just had their, their ad in the in the the dry cleaners with the guy taking his trousers off, you know, so they were kind of riding high and she, she had been working with them and, and she was kind of at the top of her game, if you like. So between us, we kind of decided, right, Topshop is going, here's our mission statement. Topshop is going to be the global authority on fashion. So a lot of other brands at the time were, were going down the price route. Um, you know, they're trying to be cheaper than everybody else. And we thought, okay, what we're going to absolutely own is, is the, the fashion space, which might sound obvious, but, but at the time it kind of wasn't really. We felt that our customers should be able to get great design, amazing service in the same way that people who visited, you know, sort of catwalk designers got that kind of service. So we thought, you know, they should, our customers should be able to have that too. So we started with the, on the route of collaborations. And I think our very first collaboration was with Joe Casley Hayford many, many years ago. Uh, uh, so we thought, let's get, let's get a little bit of that design in, into Topshop. We then started recruiting amazing designers who wanted to actually create their own collections. But we said we convinced them to come with us on our journey and, and to make Topshop into something that was incredible. We realized that the service wasn't, wasn't great so that we should bring in style advisors. We should be able, each person should be able to have their own personal style advice. In fact, we even uh, we, we brought in a service whereby you could have these style advisors come to your house with a priest a sort of curated collection, and you and your friends could have kind of a, a top shop party. You could come to top shop after hours with your friends if you wanted like a I don't know a hen party or something, and you could all try on everything you wanted to uh, when the store was closed. Um, we had hot guys on mopeds. I know I'm not probably not as so I said that now, but hot guys on mopeds that would deliver within the M25. Um, this was way back in the 90s before e-commerce even started. You know, so that you could have your clothes with you in in two hours if you absolutely couldn't get down to the store. We felt that the store itself should be this sort of incredible immersive experience. There should be theatre, there should be music, there should be video. There should be, and, and also you should have the choice of, of, of if you wanted to, to, to buy from up and coming brands who hadn't established themselves, who could trade within our store, that you could trade uh, vintage brands, upcycled, recycled, you know, anything that you, you wanted, anything at all that, that was sort of on trend or, or, or there was an expectation that we would have that. So it was kind of almost, we, we just thought, right, you are going to be so blown away when you come into the store. You know, you are going to be, your expectations are going to be so exceeded. And I, and I think that that's, that's kind of how we thought. We, were, we kind of felt the same way that our customers felt. So it worked, you know, we would sort of then sort of stood back and went, oh my God, look, this is really successful. At that time, Jane, you know, what do you think, what do you think Topshop represented to young customers here in the UK? Because this was prior to the international expansion and all of that. But I remember coming to London 
during that time. And it was, it was a destination, you know, it, it was a place that people all around the world had heard of because it, it, it had become kind of representative of that kind of cool Britannia moment and all of the stuff that was happening in the UK at the time. What did young customers feel about the Topshop brand after, after this, all of this new activity? I think they they felt that it was theirs. You know, they felt a kind of a real ownership of it, and, a, and you know, this is this is ours. Aren't we great? Because we, you know, because we've sort of I don't know created it together. It felt like you know it was something that that we were all a part of. If that makes any sense. At yeah. All. I don't know. So that brings me to like the question that's on so many people's minds this week as we hear the news of Topshop being acquired by ASOS. You know, where did things begin to go wrong for Topshop? You know, what was the tipping point where Topshop began to lose its way? Well, I think it's a very difficult question to answer in some way. I mean, young fashion is brutal you know you have to be constantly reinventing yourself to make sure that you're always relevant to your customer base I felt well you know Philip Green had taken over uh, in early 2000 I had been very clear as soon as he joined the business that I didn't want him to be any part of it because he wasn't a retailer he was you know an asset stripper more, more than anything else he bought businesses and, and then sold them again I had a lot, a lot of conversations with him and he was not a retailer in the, in the way that I saw a, a retailer should be so so Philip was was sort of kept to the margins of the business um, for, for the majority of that time he then brought Kate Moss in and um, you know hats off to him she was a great choice at the time, we hadn't brought in any celebrities. We felt the celebrity thing wasn't really a top shop. It was all about design. He brought Kate Moss in. You know, I knew that she would be uh, incredibly popular with the with the top shop customer base. But I also knew that it would it allowed Philip to, to get into Topshop, if you like, to to enter into it and start being a part of Topshop. And I do, and I knew that I could, I couldn't work with him. I could you know I could do this with my team because we were all incredibly passionate because we, we understood it. I could not work with him. Why not? Because we just had totally different views about everything. His view was that you basically that the buying decision was that you bought something as cheaply as you could possibly buy and then you sold it for as much as you could get for it. My philosophy was that you would make sure that you designed and bought something that was so amazing that no one would be able to resist it. So so we were philosophically we we had a very different view of the business. So, so I left and he took over and he and I think he felt that he knew young fashion and that he could run a young fashion business. And and I'm sorry, but, you know, he, he's a he's a, a middle aged man who doesn't know very much about retail in general and certainly didn't know very much about young fashion. And, and I think from from that moment on, probably um, he started to make decisions about Topshop. He started to run it in a way that. Uh, and in perhaps didn't realize that that a business needs to be constantly reinvented, that you need passion within that. You need a huge amount of passion from everyone involved. And if those people are perhaps not as passionate or just thinking, oh, do I really have to do this? Um, then I think it's I think you lose it very quickly. My feeling was that, that before he kind of came into it, it was like we were a room full of people together, all of us creating together something we were terribly proud of and thought was amazing. But we were doing it together. Um, I think he, his, his view very much was, was a top-down management. 
I'll tell you to do that and you'll do it. And, and I think that's that's just a very, very different thing. You know, if, if someone says to me, you go and you do that, yeah, I'll do it, but well, maybe I'll do it, but I won't do it very well. Whereas if, if I feel that I'm a part of something and I'm creating something, then I will give it everything. And I think that's what it needs. It needs everything. Is that ultimately why you decided to leave that, you know, you couldn't bring your everything? You know, what what happened to precipitate your departure? Well, it just just purely the fact that I knew that that he he had an in that he would now become involved in Topshop and he hadn't been before. And I just didn't want to work for him. I, you know, I didn't have to work for him, you know. And also, let's not forget, I was by that time in my early 40s and I kind of thought, you know what, this is this is young, high fashion. I am no longer a part of that. I've, I've kind of grown out of it. I could do something else better and I could give everything to, to another to another type of business, I suppose. The other thing that was happening, of course, during the rise of Topshop was also the rise of other big fast fashion houses, whether that be Zara or, you know, H&M or these other you know, giant global companies. Looking back now, the companies that took that this super fast approach to fashion are now, you know, really being in the, they're really in the kind of uh, the focus of fashion's um, climate crisis challenge. You know, the, 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 all of the training that we've given to customers to buy things cheap, buy things often, uh, and then dispose of garments. How do you see that whole fast fashion sector now, Topshop included, with the addition of players like ASOS and Boohoo, you know, people are calling them ultra fast fashion. It seems to me that it's this part of the, the fashion industry that's most problematic as we think about, you know, this, you know, 10 years left before we can get these carbon emissions under control and industry that contributes 10% of global carbon emissions. What's what's your take on that now? Well, I, I you know, a lot of people have sort of accused me of having uh, been one of the perpetrators of fast fashion and then sort of turn, turned around and said, uh, oh, actually, no, it's it's not the right thing to do. But, but you know, that, I, I never set out to, to create uh, disposable fashion. I said I'd create something that that was accessible to to you know the great things are accessible to to a lot of people, and and it's and I've been on a journey myself you know over the last sort of I guess ten years when I began to start feeling that this was moving in that that this was wrong that you know that that we were that the fashion had lost its value if you like that people were just literally buying things and throwing them away wearing them once and then and then moving on because it was so cheap that you could do that i i began to to feel seriously compromised by that and began to feel that i that i should leave the business in fact because i couldn't i, I couldn't in all seriousness be, be a part of of such an incredibly damaging industry which which we now know that it is and and to be fair you know we we didn't really know that uh, well we've known it for the last sort of 10 or 15 years or so uh prior to that we, we didn't perhaps we didn't know it or, or we didn't think about it uh, and i think I, I think it's it's very difficult and i and it almost seems to me as if certainly in in young fast fashion that 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 the the, the customer base it is sort of splitting and that you have almost sort of, I don't know what the numbers are, but but it feels like there's sort of 50% or so of them who, who have recognized that fashion is a real problem and have moved to depop, have moved to, to buying vintage, to charity shops, to recycling, upcycling, rental, et cetera. And, and yet there's still another 50% who 
are still very addicted to, to and, I, and I seriously mean that, addicted to, 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 to fast fashion and to having things immediately. I think it's very hard to say to those people, you can't have that. I think what you have to do is offer some sort of viable alternative that is as exciting or is as as tempting or, or, or whatever um, that that sort of lures them away from 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 what it is that they're doing. Because I agree with you. I mean, it, it, it almost feels like we're coming to a, an an endpoint. What what I do take um, what I am encouraged by is the fact that. Uh, if you'd asked me the same question about 10 years ago, I would have said that 80% of people were, were still addicted to fast fashion and only maybe 10 to 15, 20% were actually starting to realise that there was a different path that they could travel on. But but I think that, that there isn't one solution to this. I think it is about behavioural change more than anything. And I think it's up to us to find those ways to bring people with us in a different direction. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAS10. That's S-O- L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem or sneakers and streetwear so fresh Every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, Soul and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. 
Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. If you look at that market now and, you know, you have this ASOS and Boohoo and, you know, soon Topshop and others that are operating in this online only model, you know, what do you think that part how the part that part of the market is going to evolve because uh, amid the pandemic those companies have performed extraordinarily well what do you think happens to that part of the market now does it because does it still continue to grow in spite of the fact that all of this awareness is is growing around the kind of impact of fashion on the environment well that's 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 a weird one you know because there was so much publicity about Boohoo in terms of their Leicester factory base, their factories in Bangladesh, but and also for, for the fact that they were putting garments up in the, on Black Friday, I think, for eight pence or, or, or something. You know, I mean, it was just like quite literally that um, fashion has no value at all. Astonishingly, though, their sales continue to get better and better. Yes, of course, part of it is the pandemic because they're, they're, their competitors are, are you know, decimated because most of the most of the omni-channel retailers are actually still not that good at e-commerce in the same way that that these um, direct consumer brands are. I do find it astonishing. I mean, I, it seems to me that there are a core of people who who really don't care, which is which is which is why I say that that, that we have to we have to give them something better rather than saying you can't have that because I don't think that works. One last question for you, Jane. I'm sure watching the news at Topshop over the last, you know, few months, maybe a few years as you know, the businesses have become more and more troubled. I'm sure there's a little bit of you that f- has feelings about what you see um, having spent such a long time building up Topshop. I mean, what what has it been like just watching everything that's happening. It's 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 very it's very sad. It's um yeah, it's like it's like having a very close friend who's kind of not very well and you know, you're not sure what's gonna happen to them. Um I, I still know a lot of people who, who are there. In fact, I, I, I still know the um the the woman who's the manager of the Oxford Circus store. In fact, I spoke to her recently and, and it's and you know, we we were such a close team. I love those people dearly. And it has been it has been very sad, and it's been very sad for me to see them go through what they've been through in, in the last few months. But you know, let's let's be quite clear: this was going to happen anyway. You know, the pandemic has accelerated what happened, but um, it was it was going to happen anyway. You know, these these stores were, were simply not really good enough um, in today's market. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jane. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You too. Thanks, Imran. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. So what happens to Topshop now that it is firmly in the hands of the online-only retailer ASOS? 
Our senior editorial associate, Tamison O'Connor, who grew up in London, has been tracking the British High Street for years, both as a customer and a reporter on the retail beat. She has been following this story since troubles began brewing for Arcadia Group amid the strict lockdowns which have paralyzed the British retail sector. So Tammy, in your reporting over the past few weeks, have you identified kind of where things started to go wrong for Topshop, how it ended up in such a precarious financial position that it would have to be sold in a fire sale in admi- you know, after having gone into administration? Something that underpins it all is that the fashion world was changing so fast and Topshop was just not evolving with the times. And they just didn't have a clear USP or or clear target customer. I mean, anecdotally, so for example, you know, for me as a teen, I'd go to Topshop with my mom and she'd find things in Topshop and I'd find things in Topshop. Yet it still felt very, very clear, you know, Topshop Boutique was for that kind of older, more professional woman. And and then you'd have kind of Topshop lines that were more aimed at you know, younger people in their in their teens and early 20s. And I think that as other players evolved, like ASOS, Boohoo, Misguided, Pretty Little Thing, you know, they were really able to push out that trendier fashion at a much faster pace, at a lower price, that really captured that younger consumer. And, and Topshop kind of doubled down on that and tried to compete, but not with a full force behind it. I mean, you know, these brands were really good at social media. They were really good at marketing. They were really good at selling online. And and Topshop just didn't invest in, in those areas in the same way. And then on kind of the brick and mortar front, other competitors that emerged had a really clear proposition. I mean, you know, Brandy Melville came to the UK from the US. That really captures the teen shopper. Even throughout lockdowns, I've seen lines outside you know brandy melville of, of of teens wanting to go in and then there's primark which really appeals to a budget shopper and you know zara's really cornered that kind of fashion conscious more fashion forward shopper and i think that top shop just became a bit lost um and really underpinning that was you, you know this slow to digital underinvestment in, in in digital so tammy that kind of gives us a sense of what was going on with top shop in the market, how it had kind of lost its way with the customer in the face of kind of growing online and physical competition. But what was going on inside the company? Mm. Well, Arcadia had been struggling with, you know, declining sales for for years in the lead up to the pandemic and um, widening losses as well. And the year before COVID um, hit 2019, the company had reported losses of 498 million. And they embarked on a couple of restructuring exercises, but it, it, it wasn't enough. I think that's what kind of put them in the position that really gave COVID the, the kind of momentum to push them over the edge. And, you know, when Arcadia went into administration um, in November last year, 13,000 jobs, you know, were at risk. And it was reported as well that the company's pension fund had a £350 million deficit. Wow. So this is a company that even before this deal happened, was already in trouble and it was kind of teetering on the edge. The pandemic, in a way, dealt the final blow. So so tell, bring us up to speed on the, this deal with ASOS, because I think a lot of players in the market have been kind of very curious about how this all came together and what an online only retailer like ASOS will do with a 
a, a brand like Topshop that's known for its like really dynamic physical store environments? It's interesting because ASOS has actually seen a success with Topshop and, and the other brands that it's bought. Um, they started selling Topshop on its platform in 2019 and then bought on Miss Selfridge and, 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 and Hit afterwards. And of course, it was a, a more curated selection. But, you know, at that time when, you know, the group of brands that they bought, they had something like, I think it was reported 5% growth online on their own websites. Whereas the ASOS platform, they grew over 40%. And, you know, on, on the call that um, ASOS CEO did with investors after the, after the deal, um, you know, Nick Baton, he said that ASOS actually drove 80% of HIT's sales last year. HIT is um, lesser known. It's a sub-brand of Burton, which, you know, is also in the Arcadia group. And, but I think that's, that's quite interesting. And, you know, he, he talked a lot about how ASOS, that customer really responds to these brands. And he kept saying, you know, ASOS knows these brands and knows how the customers shop them. So I think that that kind of speaks to the fact that there is still a lot of potential for a brand like Topshop um, that's yet to be realized. And, you know, we know that Topshop in particular has a really strong brand equity and a very high level of consumer awareness. So ASOS is actually going to keep the positioning or how they see the positioning of, of these brands. So Topman and Topshop will sit at a, a more elevated, a bit more expensive for someone possibly in their you know, late 20s, early 30s, whereas Miss Selfridge is going to be more of a Gen Z proposition at a lower price point and, you know, hit this kind of Burton sub-brand will be the athleisure complement to their own sports brand that they sell. But I think where ASOS does have an edge is, you know, the data set. They have 3 million customers globally that helps drive their product development. And they're also really, really good at marketing and selling stuff online. Um, so I think that that, you know, is what they've kind of harnessed to, to help push the growth of, of, of these brands where Arcadia couldn't. And what happens to the physical stores, Tammy? Because, you know, Topshop was known for this like big flagship in Oxford Circus, especially, but also for those kind of really kind of dynamic store environments. Yes, totally. I mean, I think there were a lot of Topshop stores that probably, you know, did need to go that weren't new, that weren't exciting and that weren't doing what stores need to do today. But ASOS is obviously a digital pure play and they've made it quite clear that that's their core business model. It's not in their model to operate stores. I mean, there were rumors or reports that you know they were thinking of taking over the Oxford Street flagship and it was interesting because on the analyst call ASOS CEO Nick Baton didn't rule it out he said you know if it becomes financially attractive and if we can find a partner to work with never say never but it does sound like for the moment um, Topshop in the physical sense is um, going to be something of the past. Okay. One more thing for me, Tammy, this kind of deal is not something that is unique to Arcadia Group and ASOS. We've also seen a recent deal where Boohoo, another online only player, you know, bought Debenhams in a, in a similar deal structure focused on brand and IP assets. Like as you look ahead, what's next for ASOS and what's next for the British High Street, which has always been this super thriving 
part of the economy here. I mean, I was on Oxford Street the other day, just poking around out of curiosity on my daily walk. And it was it was really a wasteland there. Like there were so many stores that were boarded up. What's going to happen with this whole part of the market post-pandemic, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I do think that after the pandemic, the British high street, as it pertains to fashion, you know, it will look extremely different. Um, and Imran, you mentioned, you know, Boohoo buying up um, Debenhams. Last year, they also bought up Oasis and Warehouse, which, you know, were also key high street retailers. I think that this kind of trend of market consolidation with digital players moving in to buy up these kind of legacy high street brands does mean that post-pandemic, the British high street will largely live online instead of physically within high street stores. So I think that's going to be a, a major shift. I mean, there's also this kind of theme of digital players becoming the new gatekeepers of, of, of high street fashion. And the likes of Boohoo and ASOS have really benefited over the pandemic with, you know, the uptick in online shopping and, and especially as stores are closed. I think now is the time they're really trying to move in and capitalise on, on this momentum and, and capitalise on the opportunities that the pandemic has presented to really acquire brands on the cheap or for much less than they would have paid, you know, even 12, 14, 16 months ago. Right. Well, it's going to be really interesting to watch. And I know you have your eyes on that market. If you missed Tammy's piece this week on BOF, why does ASOS need Topshop? Do not miss it because it is a really great piece of analysis on the situation here on the British High Street. Thank you, Tammy for spending some time with me and sharing all of your insights uh, with our community here on the BOF podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast Fat Mascara here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off.